Hello, Tom here. Um, just ahead of this episode, a quick heads up, there are a couple of swear words in my interview with uh, individual pursuit record holder Ashton Lambie. Uh, it's a great interview though, and um, if you are listening with any younger ears, you might want to put your headphones on for that bit, or just listen to it in private. I also say the word dude, uh, there should be a warning about that, I say the word dude far more than I normally do, but that's because Ashton is very cool, and he talks like that, and uh, yeah, I just, um, I really, really enjoyed talking to him. Also in this episode, there's another big record holder, Joss Loudon. Uh, there's an interview with Joss Loudon, who is the new hour record holder. So it is a packed show. Um, let's get on with it. You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, we were played in there from, with a little audio from the uh, British National Championships. Uh, hello, I'm Tom Wally. This is Service Course and I'm with Lizzie Banks, who recorded that. Lizzie, do you have a good time at Nationals? I had a great time at Nationals and I thought we'd just play you in with a little teaser from what's to come on the Cycling Podcast Feminine later this month because oh, Nationals was just such a great atmosphere. If you are injured and need to go to a bike race uh, and need a bit of inspiration for how to get back, then the British National Championships in Lincoln is absolutely where it's at. It was incredible to be at a bike race with such an amazing atmosphere so many people cheering um it was up the famous michael gate cobbled climb and it just oh it was electric there so yeah that was five for georgie uh the winner of the women's event and ben swift was the winner of the uh men's road race but yeah you'll hear about hear about that later in the month on the cycling podcast feminine I um I'd love to go to that. I I, I do think the uh, Lincoln GP and that circuit deserves a bit of a higher status, really, because it, it produces great racing whenever there's an event on it. I remember when um, I think Pete Kennick won nationals on that circuit at a two up with Mark Cavendish a while back, and it and it is a you know it's a brutal cobbled climb. How many how many times do they do it on, on nationals for for both races? It's eight laps for the women and twelve laps for the men. And I, wow. I actually raced there in 2015. It, it was my first um, British national championships and. One week before I'd done my first national race, I think I came 23rd um, and I had no idea what I was doing. And that year was won by Lizzie Dignan, who was, of course, on incredible form because she later won the world championships in Richmond later that year. And the amazing thing about that race with Lizzie Dignan is... The final time up the up the Michael Gate climb, which is a, a steep cobbled climb for those of you that don't know it, and especially after eight times up it, it really wears you down, drains your legs, and you have nothing left to give. Lizzie Dignan went up in the big ring. <laughs> She's pretty good, Lizzie Dignan. We should probably talk about that at some point. Um, but you've been on the road. You've been at the women's tour as well, Lizzie. You've been um, for what. For a cyclist who's had to sit out with injury, I would find it very difficult, I think, going to a bike race. But there you are, not only at the side of the road watching the races, but cheering on, you know, some of your friends and rivals. Well, I mean, I mean, that's great. It's great to see, Lizzie. I, I couldn't do it myself. Oh, I, you know, I think after being out for such a long time, you... Um 
you know, at the beginning it's hard because you almost don't, well, I mean, I couldn't watch the bike races at the beginning because, um, yeah, for those of you that don't know, I had a long concussion injury um, sustained at Strada Bianca and thankfully have been uh, been released now and declared as fine again, which is really lovely to just be doing normal things again and not having to be worrying about my brain and what I do and using my brain energy and things like that. But um, yeah, as soon as I was released, I got back on the road with the cycling podcast, trying to uh, steal Orla and Richard's job. And we covered the, the women's tour and it was an amazing six days. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, please go back and listen to them because we, we, we covered the race and you can you can follow it without watching the race. And it was just... It was just brilliant to be back at a bike race. And it was the kind of thing, same with nationals. If, you, if you're kind of wondering, well, why am I doing this? Um, it's so challenging, all these injuries we go through. And, and you watch riders again at Paris-Roubaix and they're hitting their head with concussion and, and, and breaking bones left, right and centre. Annemiek van Vluten's got a broken pelvis. And you kind of sometimes think, oh, is it worth the risk? And then you go to a bike race and you feel the atmosphere and you, you see the kids cheering by the side of the road and... It just gives you that uh, inexplicable, really, feeling and sensation um, of exactly why you do it. And it's, I mean, if you listen to those podcasts from the women's tour, you will hear that excitement and that electricity that the the kids on the side of the road and the fans give the bike race and that excitement that you get. And the thing is, when I'm racing, like I feel that excitement, um, you know, I almost feel it like a spectator, but during a bike race, it's, um, yeah, it's a really special thing, but it was an amazing week at the women's tour and great to be back at nationals. And, um, yeah, definitely given me, not that I needed any more motivation, but definitely given me an extra boost to be training hard to, to get back to where I want to be for 2022. Well, we've got a packed episode this month. Uh, I want to crack on with it. Uh, we've got two or th- well, three actually interviews in the show. Um, but before I tell you about what's what's happening, um, you did mention Roubaix there, Lizzie, and I just wanted to quickly. I know it's it's kind of in the past, and everyone's sort of you know gone over it and what happened. But um, it's the first chance I've had to talk to you about Paris Roubaix um, since the race. Um, First of all, I wanted to get your thoughts on it and how you feel about doing it next year, because no doubt you'll be lining up. And also anything you sort of learn on the tech side of things from, you know, uh, colleagues and, and rivals who, who rode the race. Well, Roubaix was, again, just another electric bike race to watch. I was actually um, driving home and watching it on my phone and uh, my husband was driving. And for the last 20K, I was like, you've, you've just got to start off. We've got to watch this. It was a moment in history. And I think um, even from when I turned on the coverage, this was the women's race that I was watching. Um, from when I turned on the coverage, Lizzie Dagnan was already solo because she was solo from 80K to go or something. And... Uh, and I felt at the point where I turned it on about 50k to go with two minutes in the bag and a howling tailwind. I thought, well, she can't she can't not win from here unless uh, a disaster or a mechanical were to strike. But it's interesting to look at the, the kit that Trek were using. Um, and it was the same kit across the men's and the women's peloton. And they had a one by setup. And it's funny when we look back at the, the 3T Strada that Aquablue used, um, oh, I don't know, a couple of, two, two, three, three, four years ago. Uh, and we kind of thought, oh, this is so so stupid on a one-by bike. Uh, and now we've got Lizzie Dagnan winning Paris-Roubaix on a one-by bike, and we all think it's brilliant. Um, but it makes so much sense for that kind of race. You know, she had obviously one by at the front, but in this special chain catcher that kind of... Um, 
comes over the top of the ring and makes sure that the chain can't pop off on either side. And, you know, mechanicals are plentiful in a race like Roubaix. And if you're trying to change chain rings or even if you have the risk of your chain coming off the the, the big ring... Um, or your chain dropping, then then if you can mitigate that risk by not having that, then why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and some astonishingly low tire pressures was the thing that I learned from it. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I think it was reported that she was running thirty five psi. Um, I think it was thirty three, wasn't it? I think I heard thirty three, <laughs> okay. maybe. I mean, obviously, it went. It probably went. I mean, by the end of the race, it was probably about twenty five. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting. We. Um, In 2019, I wasn't actually there for this race, but um, on Bigler, Cecilia Ludwig was third in Flanders. And it was kind of a bit of a secret at the time about her tyre pressure, but it was very similar, uh, her tyre pressure in Flanders. And she actually did a bike change, which was risky to do it. She did a bike change during the race um, and took a bike with a lower pressure tyre for the the kind of the final sector. and that is risky because if it doesn't go right, you can lose a lot of energy. And anyway, taking a bike change is going to lose lose you a lot of energy. But if you get that if you get that pressure right, then you can kind of float across the cobbles. Actually, I spoke to um, Tommaso from Victoria Tires. I think it was back at the beginning of 2020 in one of the episodes. So go and check out the archive and and search that out. And we talked about this how. Uh, the the way that the tire deforms in in kind of yeah different ways over different surfaces and that actually you know although you think sometimes that a higher pressure means that you can go fast you're bouncing more and therefore you're in contact with the the surface less and you're able to put the power down less so it's really complicated and it doesn't always initially seem to make sense about what the right tire pressure would be for a certain surface but i think if you look into it you can actually be really quite surprised about how low you can go well let's move on from rebel and get into the actual meat of this episode uh, we are speaking to two world record holders uh, lizzie you spoke to a world record holder didn't you i did indeed i spoke to joss loudon at nationals <laughs> I mean, it was pretty mean of me because after nationals, they were all absolutely soaked to the skin and freezing cold. But I let her go uh, and get a pizza and warm up before I, uh, yeah, took her to the side of the road and uh, did an interview with her about her new hour record. Um, But first... Yeah, first we're going to speak to uh, Ashton Lambie, who's a, who's a guy I've wanted to speak to for ages. I just find him fascinating. He's got a very nice moustache. Uh, he lives <laughs> in a trailer. Um, he rides gravel. He's, he's just a pretty cool guy. Um, but he is, um, well, he's currently competing in the World Track Championships as well, um, where he'll probably go up against uh, Filippo Ganna, which... Um, will be tough for him but he is the new individual pursuit world record holder so me and ashton uh we had a coffee well we tried to have a coffee uh over zoom and uh, a very long chat so here's ashton so we me and my partner christina live at her family's ranch in montana in an rv that we're redoing like we're in the process of of renovating the entire thing um so We've gotten like the bathroom done. We got the bedroom done. That was the first one. Like we bought it and it was, uh, it was my family's old camper and it was just like in a lot worse shape than we expected. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where we're living. Everything it's, it's getting pretty operational. So we've made a really nice cozy space. 
we just got the the water heater going the other day because it's get, starting to get cold up in Montana. But it's like it's snowy. We've got our first snow of the year here, so it's like pretty cold outside, and it's really pretty. Yeah, it's wow. gorgeous. So, so you're one of these people that just sort of you know chases the sun. You know what what do they call them in America? These these sort of nomadic people who drive the R- RVs. Uh, I don't know what they call them, but yeah, we're, we're sort of like that. Um, we've got, we're kind of in, I mean, both of us are in like a bit of a transition spot, just like, you know, kind of in between big cycling goals. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we're here right now, um, just to kind of be in Montana for most of the summer. Like the gravel is really nice hanging out with our family's awesome. The area is really pretty. Um, and then, yeah, we're not really sure where we're going to head next. Arizona's on the list that could happen, which would again be yeah, chasing the sun and you know getting. It's hard to hard to argue with like a nice you know winter training camp around Phoenix. Like that sounds awesome. Well, I mean, you are. I mean, the reason I wanted to speak to you is you do. Um, you are unconventional. I mean, um, mm-hmm. a couple a couple of things I wanted to ask you about before we get into the meat of it. Just quick fire. Uh, did you manage yeah. to Did you manage to ride all the gravel roads in your county? Yes. You did it. How far, how many was that? How many miles, kilometers? Uh, no, it was like 14, 1400 miles, I think. Four, wow. There's 1463 of gravel roads. But I ended up like where I was living at the time, I did them all from there. So it would be like, you know, I'd go out and do an 80 mile ride and tick off, say, like six miles of unridden roads in like the way southwest corner of the county. Because I lived just like on the on the far east side of the county like one mile from the edge of the county wow it sounds dreamy i mean you know we've all been uh, over here we've all been sort of we've all bought into the gravel dream but then realized there's not enough gravel for the bikes really i feel like there's quite a bit of gravel in the uk like a, you just gotta a, get the satellite view gets you a long ways over there because not all the not all the gravel roads are like listed yeah, there's a few. I mean, a lot of them. A lot of them you can ride, but you're not really supposed to be on them. You know, they they like they're like farm tracks or you know private tracks and stuff. I mean, I found a few in the Peak District. Yeah, but they're, yeah. they're not technically legal. I don't think. Mm, well, I, I my rule is like just don't jump any fences. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. C- did you manage to squat three hundred pounds? That was my other question. Yeah, uh, yeah, I got up to three fifteen nice congratulations man that is a huge Thanks, amount man. yeah uh, that was actually a pretty fun break after uh after worlds last year i think it was just kind of like oh well everything's canceled and i had a nice home gym like we've got a really nice home gym so just like oh let's just tuck in do gym five days a week and make it happen it was really fun cool well nice I mean, nice change of pace yeah big time i can imagine i mean for this piece i really i mean i envisaged with both um you know have a have a coffee together but unfortunately i've uh, my coffee machine's out of action so i'm um oh i'm making coffee right now good are you, are you i mean well we should let listen no, it's, it's actually was it 7 a.m where you are you are, uh-huh. you, a mor- are yeah. you a morning are you a morning person yeah i get up around like 6 30 or 7 we've got two cats so i feed the cats every day make coffee and usually yeah you can hear paul nice my, i'm actually living away from my cats at the moment it's uh it's heartbreaking oh no yeah, yeah. i know uh, bunk bunk and jimmy are currently in my house uh back in the peak district and I'm, i've got oh. one of my, i've got one of my cats here he's he's allowed here the other two they're not allowed here <laughs> oh 
Yeah. So uh, Ronnie's with me. Um, yeah. So um, so you 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 morning person. What what uh, what are you drinking? What's your what's your coffee of choice this morning? Pumpkin Starbucks pumpkin spice blend. <laughs> That's, I'm I not kidding. Dead I thought set. you'd be something much more pretentious. You know, you know what cyclists are like. Well, yeah, it's kind of, there's not like, we're, we're definitely in rural Montana and there's not necessarily a spot to get like really good freshly roasted beans. Um, so I've got a, a buddy who brews coffee in uh, Kansas City that, or roast coffee and he'll send us bags every once in a while, um, you know, but other than that, yeah, it's kind of like, whatever we can get at the grocery store. Cause even the closest grocery store is like a 30 to 40 minute drive. Wow. One way. I was gonna say, I think you're more of an, from reading your sort of travel log of your trip from Glasgow to Derby, which we'll, we'll talk about later, but uh, I think you're more of an ale man. I think you've got quite a, quite a taste for British ale. Oh, I do. I really like good ale. Yeah. The beer over there is awesome. I'm glad to Cause hear you guys it. do that you do like the cask ales, you know, that's like a whole different thing. It's such a unique genre of beer. I know we were doing it before it was trendy as well. Before it was hip, we were doing it. Yeah. I feel like everywhere in the, in the U S is always big on like these microbrew IPAs. And like, I feel like I'm the only, the only person who doesn't like IPAs. Like I'll order a Scotch ale or uh, like an Irish ale, red ale at any, any, brewery i go to but usually there's like one option so 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 a bit about you then um so you grew up in in kansas what was that like then as a, as a child were you always were you very outdoors as a family yeah i mean we we would spend a, quite a bit of time outdoors um i actually grew up in nebraska i lived in kansas oh, okay. for a few years yeah uh but i mean for all intents and purposes they're the same thing like they're not that different um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's like, I'm trying to think of probably like Southern UK where it's just like a lot of, uh, you know, rolling hills, like rolling countryside. Um, but again, like pretty rural, you know. And what, you know, people you, you went sort of grew up with, you know, what sort of path did they take then? Would they be sort of, you know, going into sort of rural industries and stuff like that or, you know, go away to college? Yeah. What's, the, what's the kind of path? Yeah, a lot of people stay local. Like it is, you know, uh, pretty common that, you know, like, oh, people stay around their families. They get to know the community there. Um, they end up with a job, you know, in, in a local industry or something. So, I mean, a lot of people stay local, stay with, uh, I don't know, teaching the industries around there. What about getting into yeah. cycling then? Um, where does cycling come into your life? Yeah. I mean, well, I found my dad's road bike on the wall when I was 15. Um, and then I just really fell in love with it after that. Like I started riding everywhere, um, would ride to high school and then started racing a little bit in high school. Um, did a couple local road races and really like figured out pretty quickly. That wasn't my scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, got into Audaxes and ultra distance, randoneering, that kind of thing. And where, where does the track come in then? Because obviously, you know, you've excelled on the track as well. Um, yeah. yeah. I guess a velodrome, I guess you didn't really have a local velodrome. No, and I still don't. Uh, yeah, I, when I was living in Kansas, um, you know, I was always doing like these gravel races and it was sort of like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of stocky for an ultra distance guy. Like, I wonder if maybe there's something I could do a little better. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, a, I borrowed a buddy's Surly Steamroller um, to race on a local grass track, which is just like a track that was sort of mowed in someone's field. It's a 333 meter track. Um, and yeah, did really well. Like got a bunch of track records my first night out. And then they, you know, kind of pushed me to go start racing more domestically. Started racing at T-Town. And uh, yeah, that was, I won my first national championship in 2017. And then, so where does that take you then? When, when, you, when you get into track at that level, then, I mean, I guess, I guess you need to start thinking about moving away from home when you start to, to get to that level. Um, I mean, we were still like, it was mostly just traveling. And so mm. it would be like, oh, you're going to be gone traveling for two or three months at a camp. And that seemed to work okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's just kind of this continuing circus of like, oh, okay, you're, you're traveling for you know, world cups, world championships, training camps, Pan Am, like, re, you know, regional championships and games. And, you know, you spend a month in T-Town. So at what point does sort of cycling then, I mean, I mean, is, is cycling your job? I mean, at what point does it become your job? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's pretty much the full-time gig. Um, you know, we piece together stuff from sponsors like me and Chris both have uh, Lauf as a sponsor, which is awesome. We'll give that shameless plug here. Oh, beautiful. Um, You've got a beautiful bike from them, by the way. Beautiful. Thanks, man. Yeah, we think so too. We actually, I don't, have you seen their like teal color? Like no, but mint green. But I've got, a, I've got a teal, I've got a bit of a fetish for teal, I've got a teal sofa. So yeah, I would like to see you that. You should look at it. It's a real light, I like a light teal, almost a mint. But uh, that was actually a colorway we helped design for them in. 2019 when we started and we right. wrote it for 2020 and then now this year it's like a public color so anyone can buy the gravel knots color scheme which is like so yeah we get to do stuff like that with our sponsors and that uh yeah that kind of makes ends meet and i mean tell us a bit about laugh actually because i i don't i don't know much about them other than through you actually which i you know i saw saw you riding one sort of click through and and take a look what what's are they the small local company what are they they're I would say a pretty small company. Um, like we went and visited their office and met all the staff in, uh, I think August or yeah, July, we went over to, uh, Iceland. I mean, it's a pretty small company for the amount of bikes they move. And so I think for us, a lot of the focus is like, you know, we switched to direct to consumer. So there's no like bike shops or distributors or anything. Um, but we have a pretty good, like, return program and all this stuff they're just an awesome company to work with like i think everyone's motivation is like the the lao forks are awesome that we can bring like a really high quality bike at a competitive price and then just like try to take care of people riding you know like i think at the bottom at the bottom line it's like oh we think this bike is going to help you have more fun adventuring on gravel and so like we just want to do that you know we want to help everyone get out and adventure on gravel what about the Icelandic gravel? Is what's that like? I mean, oh, dude, it's gnarly! Oh my gosh! I was, I've been to Iceland. I mean, it, it, for those who haven't been, I mean, it is—it's another world. It's another planet. I mean, when you fly in, you, you know, it, you, this just looks completely unfamiliar. You know, the landscape it totally I mean, is. Yeah. yeah. So, what's the right? What's the what's the gravel riding like there? I mean, is there gravel? Or is it sort of like I guess the volcanic rocks radically different to what you're used to? Yeah, um, they are. The gravel there is like riding on the moon. Like it's insane. <laughs> I think you, you summed it up really well because like it was me and Christina's first time for both of us going there. 
and it was just like it's you know you go we've traveled a lot like um you know with with track and cycling and everything but then like you know you go to a place and you're like oh okay it's like another tropical location you're like yeah i've seen palm trees before these are a little different and like the beach is a little different but like there's sort of a, a room for comparison you know um but i agree iceland is like so far removed from any other place we've ever been it's just like it is it's like a totally different planet and the gravel is the same too like um it looks like something off of interstellar like yeah it does. It's just, you're right yeah, some, absolutely yeah some i mean there's some descents that are just like these massive boulders and you're just kind of bouncing around down them um and then there's other ones where it's like you know just this deep silty sand or washboards um but that's where like the lauf fork makes a huge difference i think because I I was getting ready for the the record and I only did the hundred K, but Christina did the 200 K and like just such a massive effort to do that whole loop through the highlands. It was crazy. Yeah. God, she got to see some awesome stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to see a freaking volcano. Like how wild (laughs) is that? That's crazy. You know, not not just a volcano, you know, a volcano that is still actively being a volcano and doing volcano things, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. It was crazy because we had to park like at the road, you know, like that goes on the coast. And I was like, oh, okay. It'll be like, it was like a six mile hike to get just to, and we weren't even close. I mean, just the level of lava, like, you know, you see photos of people like roasting marshmallows and stuff on the lava. That was like months ago. Now it is just like this, like square miles of just this black charred hellscape of lava that has just covered these entire valleys and you can't walk on it because there's still lava just like flowing underneath wow it's nuts man so i know a lot of people who've done like there's um there's a sort of race and a ride that you can do which loops around the whole island but that's um that's a road the ring road yeah Yeah. but i didn't know i mean we need this we need a gravel world tour really don't we i mean it's it's the next step i think you know and iceland should definitely be a destination on that world tour oh you mean like a a uci world tour um i'm not i didn't say the uci (laughs) i'm careful not to use those careful not to use those those that those letters yeah very careful um i mean having spoken to dan you know your 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 teammate uh a few times you know i know you guys butt heads with the uci uh quite regularly but talking about um gravel well we're going to move on to talking about your your awesome record but um i I got to know you mostly uh through through gravel initially has that sort of taken a bit of a back seat recently for you um i mean it's tricky because like i think event wise it's taken a little bit of a back seat where you know i i spend uh, you know time traveling to to go to track events and stuff but i mean i think we've both gone to some good events like we did unbound this year okay uh, we did the rift this year and i would say training wise i mean that's still what i train on you know 98 percent of the time what i mean training on gravel and then you know and then taking taking that to the track what what is it that you get out of the gravel that 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 works for you i don't know we were <laughs> just talking about this last night or not last night but the other day like um about like how power meters don't necessarily capture the full effort of gravel yes. because i was doing a ride 
And it was like, you know, I haven't been doing a ton of base miles lately. And so for me, like doing zone two is a little bit harder than it used to be. And I was just like, oh, this is kind of a grind. And then I hit the edge of town and I feel like I'm doing the same effort, like RPE, but then I hit pavement and it's like 50 more watts. And I'm just like, what the fuck just happened? Um, and so, yeah, me and Christina were talking about like, you know, where, where that extra like effort goes and if there's a way to track it, I think was like our next step, but mostly both of us commiserating and agreeing that like, yes, doing Watts on gravel is harder than doing them on the road. And especially up here because the gravel in Montana is like, it's chunky. It is some of the chunkiest, gnarliest gravel I've ever ridden. You know what people should do? Someone like you should, you should have little sort of samples of gravel that you travel around with just to show people, you know, little vials of this is Montana. Oh, this is Iceland. We're, you know. we're on it, man. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, maybe not necessarily samples. Um, but we're definitely like trying to bring more people to the gravel up here. Um, and it have like some, maybe, maybe not a universal gravel scale, but like there are grading systems for gravel that currently exist. You know, if you go to like a quarry and you're like, yeah, I want, I want sifted grade three, like that's a specific kind of gravel, you know? So yeah, I've kind of been talking with uh, some of the guys at Zip to try and come up with some sort of like, okay, what what kind of gravel is this? What kind of gravel is this? How can we measure it? Like maybe we could measure it in the size of Oreos or Triscuits, you know, like, I don't know, whatever. Oh, say, go if, ahead. You, if, if you come up with it, you get to call it, you know, it gets to be the Lambie scale, doesn't it? You get to name it. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. I just want like a little bit more ubiquitous of a scale when someone's like, oh, well, I'm going to this place. And I feel like, you know, the range of gravel tires is is always expanding um you know where some people ride gravel on uh you know a full mountain bike tire you get you get bikes that can clear you know a 650 by 225 and then there's other people that ride gravel on madones and it's like you're riding gravel on a 700 by 33 and there's you know there's a little bit of course recon but there's also kind of like real world experience that i think can help people select a better tire and have a better time hopefully that's the goal I tell you what, over here at the moment, we're sort of fascinated by tire. After Paris Roubaix the other week, we're sort of fascinated by what's possible with tire pressures and stuff. But in terms of gravel, again, mm. what, what are you? Um, you obviously, we know you're on the lap. But what are you? What are you riding? What's the rest of your setup like when you're racing gravel? Oh well, yeah. So I'm on the lap, um, and then Zips. Uh, I've got a couple different wheel sets from Zips that are set up in different different tires and whatnot. Um, Right now, just due to the parts parts shortage, I'm actually riding a weird like opposite mullet where I've got a 27 and a half up front and a 700 in the back, um, mostly just due to tires. <laughs> so I've got a 2.25 on the front and then a 700 by 38 on the back. So it's business at the back, party at the front. That's the way it's going. Yeah, which honestly, I think like just because again the gravel up here is so chunky that works out really well like the the 225 is a massive tire and it's just like it really sucks up those those bigger chunks shoot uh, shoot that arrière du peloton cycling podcast team car the back of the pack please 
That said, PK, interrupting Ashton to remind me to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by NordVPN. Now, to tell you about NordVPN, here is our resident computer internet tech expert, the man who Keanu Reeves' character in The Matrix was based on. Yep, that is Lionel Burney. Lionel, what the hell is a VPN and why do I need one? It stands for Virtual Private Network and it basically... Uh, offers you protection and security when you are online and I've been using NordVPN since before they started advertising in the podcast in fact just because I'm aware I became aware really that surfing uh, the internet connecting online in hotspots or hotel receptions probably not the smartest and most secure way to uh, carry on our business and so I signed up for NordVPN and uh, I know that when I am uh, logged in basically all of the data and details um, are secure and safe so nobody can snoop on our bank account details or get up to any mischief um, which is really important especially if you are working on the road but equally if you're just um, on a leisure trip you don't want to uh, have your tablet or phone or laptop hacked at all and using internet connections that you're not 100% certain about is a risk too far for me anyway. Uh, if you would like to find out more or even get up to 73% off a two-year plan plus four months bonus access to NordVPN protection for free, go to nordvpn.com TCP or use the code cycle. This is a limited time offer, so be quick, but you can get 73% off a two-year plan plus four months free at nordvpn.com com slash tcp or use the code cycle and those details are in the show notes all right well we'll get back to part two um with ashton in a little bit but next joss lizzie well new hour record holder i mean what else is there to say really but um I'll let her do the talking because she ran me all through it at the side of the road in Lincoln. So I hope that the background isn't too loud, but but it was lovely and atmospheric. We were stuck between the top of Michael Gate and the finish line. Um, So we had riders coming past the tannoy on the other side and a lot of very excited crowds. So, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy what she has to say. Well, Joss, we are in Lincoln and you just had a very successful national campaign. But actually, we want to look back to the hour record now. And really, what I want to know is, what was your preparation for this? And because I think you you did a a test run in February. And if I understand rightly, you actually beat the record back then. So, well, how confident were you going into it? And how long has the preparation been for this event? Um, So I was was actually kind of better prepared in February than I was this time round. So... Basically, because of um, like travel restrictions in January, I spent the whole of December, January basically on my track bike on the turbo. So not on the track, but in position, long efforts. And so in February, I was in pretty good like shape for an hour practice hour, and then. Um, and then, so I knew it was going to be difficult to fit it in the season, but I wanted to fit it in. I didn't want to just commit entirely to just doing an hour. Um, I wanted to race properly and I wanted to go to Worlds and I wanted to do the women's tour and I wanted to fit it all together. And it was, yeah, a case of just, yeah, fitting it in when it would fit. And so I don't think it was the best preparation, but it was, and yeah, and I suppose it kind of meant 
like maybe it wasn't the best ride I could have done maybe I could do a better ride I, I can do a better ride but it was the best I could do at that point in the season and at that time um yeah <laughs> so so going into it you've got two options really you've obviously got a record that you need to try and break and you can look at it as do I try and break this by as small a margin as I possibly can in order to ensure that I definitely break this or do I break this by as much as I possibly can which is obviously a risk so well, which one did you go for and how do you decide going into it what to do we were pretty risk averse actually in the end so um I sort of I sort of said right I'm going to do uh, 48 and a half and that was like the pacing strategy for it but go out pretty easy no stress and then if I feel like I can pick it up a bit pick it up a bit and I started to do that and then in the last 10 minutes I just thought I was going to throw up like I really thought I was going to be sick and so everything else is fine like my legs are right I'm not like massively I'm not really out of breath it's like yeah it's uncomfortable your mouth is dry you feel it's pretty grim it's not but you I just thought I was going to be sick and that point I was like you just need to ride this in do not mess this up because you don't I, I don't need to and at that point I think yeah I just kind of kept it at a pace that I was kind of instead of really ramping it and maybe put like yeah nudging it over a little bit bit further but yeah like I say so yeah it was it was risk averse but it was it was what I needed to do to ensure I did it <laughs> but as the record holder now it's obviously not your prerogative to try and break it again but I think from what you said you know that if someone were to break it there's a lot more in you and a lot more to give but when you did that test run in February how much did you break it by I mean that was off the record of course but yeah. but what were your numbers back no, then? No so that I broke it by less but that was because of the conditions really um, my power was more when I did it in February than it was this time round. Like, wow. not hugely different, but I think five watts or something like that. But, um, I mean, like, the thing is what's nuts, the conditions make such a big difference. So the over the days that followed when I did the hour, so Dan did his the next day, had I done it on the day that he did it, I think I would have gone maybe 200 metres further. If I'd done it on the Monday, we reckon 500 metres further. That's the difference. And what? you broke it by 400 metres, is that right? Yeah. So that's, you know, almost another lap. It's huge, yeah. So wow. like the difference that the conditions can make, the air pressure, is like absolutely massive. And um, I think, yeah, so then of course you start going, well, if I did it on another day, if I, you know, maybe prepared for it in a different way, could I do it again? And, you know, maybe, maybe I will. Uh, I've heard sort of rumours, not like noises about certain riders going to have a go. And I'm like, that's what I want. I think that's just cool. Like, make it a bit competitive. Yeah. And, well, what about the setter? Because you've had, you know, it's not just been you doing this. And you've been very uh, vocal about the fact that there's a whole team behind you. So tell me a bit about what actually goes in, in terms of resources and people and... Um, kind of trialing different setups optimizing your aero-ness on the bike um you know what what goes into that in order to make you the best possible you know the, the best possible version of you on the day yeah i mean there's a lot of things i mean the interestingly so the the aero side of it i mean dan is just sort of like massively on top of that but also lacole with the skin suit so i was in the wind tunnel with yanto um testing if, like different suits out what worked best for me um the logistics actually that goes into booking like arranging an hour is hugely complex yeah i've had to get put on the blood passport so i wasn't on anti-doping before that so i got put on that which means i had five six maybe even seven blood and urine tests in the run-up to it in the five months so yeah yeah pretty pretty sort of heavily tested and then um yeah lacole just yeah put on the whole event which was amazing because it meant that took it entirely from my hands really so yeah it was a lot of prep went into it um and um yeah in terms of like my physical state so i've got a coach sean 
Yates and he just yeah he knows that you know it's actually quite a difficult one to prep for because you're looking at this whole calendar and being like okay so you need to be like really on form for this hour but you've got three events to do the week before it and like it's totally different and also like I actually hadn't ridden my bike very much so I'd done this altitude camp in Sierra Nevada, Nevada in the back end of August into September came home from that and then it's kind of a case of actually sort of tapering and I think I tapered too much because I pretty much didn't really ride my bike very much and actually just did quite a lot of running around all over the place because it was the Tour of Britain the men's and I wanted to watch and that was a bit bad so I kind of I did quite a lot of like running around and then and then I was like oh was that the best prep for worlds it's quite difficult but by the time I actually got to the hour I thought I actually have, I haven't really done a lot of riding I've only like raced or rested which kind of played in my mind a bit because I am the sort of rider that goes quite well off like a bit of volume which was why I was quite happy to have the women's tour afterwards to actually get a bit a few miles in my legs before I came here um, in the end I think it just made me ill but <laughs> like, but like yeah so it's really difficult to piece it all together it's like a Tetris game like you know with the seasons pieces of jigsaws and how it all works so it's not easy but uh, yeah yeah got away with it <laughs> well obviously having Dan Bigham as your partner you have uh, you know you're kind of the perfect powerhouse of time trialing and aero geekiness and working out what you need to do in order to optimize everything in in the front end really with the armrests from watch off and everything like that but what about the bike like how did you how did you actually decide what bike is going to be best did you test it um and, and what was the testing process for that um it was quite simply that that was the bike we had so i was riding uh, argon 18 which was one of the bikes that the who watch Shop boys had had i don't know who rode it maybe it was might have been ashton lambies or something like that one of their bikes and when their team dissolved you know dan had you know a couple of those bikes so I started riding it and so that was just the sort of the natural bike of choice and um, I mean they'd done a lot of testing in the past so we didn't really look at the bike itself we knew it was fast and that was the bike I was going to ride and then it was the bits and pieces that went on it yeah like the watch shop extensions and like the just the wheels fast forward wheels were sponsored so we were yeah really fortunate with the equipment that we had I always think it's fascinating there's often so much focus on the bike itself but actually really there's very little difference between the bikes and actually it's your front end that really matters that's the bit that's really hitting the wind and differences between bikes is is marginal and yes of course sometimes you're looking at hundredths of a second but really overall it's it's your actual you hitting the wind that's important yeah definitely so yeah the frames are yeah they differ slightly but they're not like hugely different it's your your components and well this is my understanding anyway yeah your components and certainly yeah your position and how well you can hold it and um and fatigue over that hour as well because a lot of people you know you can hold that position maybe in the wind tunnel but when you're racing for an hour at the end of that hour your your shoulders are exhausted your neck is exhausted you know you're feeling sick because you're crouched it's really really an hour is so different from like even 50 minutes the difference in how I fell in the last 10 minutes like the last 10 minutes was long was longer than the first 50 is what it feels like and every time is standing still time is standing still it stops like it's so cruisy up to that sort of 50 minute point and then it's like bosh and then it's just really unpleasant and like yeah everything like yeah your mouth going dry your lips are sore because you haven't had a drink you obviously haven't moved your eyes you haven't done anything so everything kind of then catches up with you it's just I suppose when I when I did it in February though it was the last 22 minutes when I felt like that and I suppose maybe I was putting more power out then maybe I had to kind of really like pushed on but um yeah fortunately it was only 10 minutes I had to really suffer like that this time but it's yeah it's pretty grim <laughs> well our record holder reserved for the Olympics now you're moving on to UNOX next year what's coming up for you then um 
I'm yeah, really excited about next year. Like I've learned a lot this year. I can't believe it actually. Like Nico Marsh has been uh, pretty incredible on uh, as a DS on our team. Tom Varney this year and what they've done with drops has been, yeah, I think pretty pretty incredible. And it's been really good to be part of that. And I just I'm so far from you know reaching my potential in terms of what I've learned in terms of my physical ability. And I know that. Oh, well, I'm confident that Uno X is going to be a really good environment to keep progressing and they yeah, are looking forward to like yeah Tour de France I mean that's going to be amazing and Commonwealth Games Commonwealth Games yeah that's in there the Battle of the North I think that's going to be a big one next year yeah, so. and that'll be a big one for your new sponsors as well yeah I think so so yeah we've got a really good calendar looks like a nice team um, I'm just I'm just enjoying it that's been a big thing like my mental sort of uh, like I don't know state I guess has changed a huge amount I was really quite nervous and was kind of convinced every road race I went into I'd crash and break my collarbone and I don't think that anymore I've come a long way <laughs> so yeah just enjoying it chute, chute à du peloton, podcast, team car, the back of the pack, this episode is also sponsored by LinkedIn now today many small business owners are busier than ever time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free. Now, we've used LinkedIn here at the Cycling Podcast to recruit producers. I've also used it personally for my own business. I work for myself um, as a freelance producer, so I'm often responding to job adverts on LinkedIn. I'm also pleading for jobs on LinkedIn and letting people know that I'm available. But I also have a production company myself called Stripped Media, and we've used LinkedIn ourselves to hire for big projects, radio production, podcast production projects that we're doing. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs and it reaches the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK alone. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience that you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. Just a warning though, if you do post a podcast production job, I may apply. Well, that was uh, the new um, hour record holder, uh, Joss Loudon, and who had a pretty good time at Nationals as well, Lizzie. Yeah, double podium for Joss, which is, well, what a great ride. Um, podium in the, well, second in both the time trial and the road race. And as you heard there, she was saying she was on Ashton Lamby's bike. And he first came to my attention when he was riding for Hoop What Bike doing really crazy things there. And I kind of thought, well, who is this guy? And why has he not been... Well, why has he not been picked up by USA Cycling? But it wasn't, you know, it's not really that. It's that he doesn't really kind of fit into the mould. And, you know, we've seen with Sepp Kuss as well, he actually has refused spots in USA Cycling time and time again because he didn't go to the Olympics, didn't go to the World Championships, because selection processes for national teams can be so challenging. Um so, yeah, so Ashton's one of those those incredible athletes that doesn't fit into the mould, yet is capable of breaking one of, you know, the hardest records in the world. Well, let's hear more from Ashton. This is Ashton Lambie part two. Away from the gravel um, to the track, which is, you know, obviously your your main focus and, and where a lot of people listening to this podcast will have will have heard you heard about you from. Um, I actually don't know. There's a part of the story that I don't know. I don't know how you ended up with who, what bike. I mean, because, you know, they were just a, 
a bunch of people who knew each other in Derby. Um, and then then you came in and you were sort of the exotic guy from. from yeah. How, 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 can you tell me how that happens? I really don't know. Yeah, I remember watching those guys race in Minsk and I think Milt when it was the KGF team. Yeah. Um, watching them race in Minsk. And then I remember seeing them and introduce, you know, like meeting them in Milton. Um, and then we kind of just got chat because that was after I'd gotten the world record um, the first time and then started chatting with them. And then, yeah, it was really Johnny just like just messaged me. It was like 8 a.m. And he was like, hey, do you want to come race London in Berlin with us? And I was like, yeah can can you give me like like six hours to figure this out and he was like yeah that's fine i was like oh okay cool so like that that was really pretty much it johnny just messaged me and what was it about them that i mean i was there i i was there in manchester at the world cup round um when there was they were sensational they were and you know um it was the first chance for a lot of people in britain to really see what they were all about and what they were doing was different but what was it about them that that made that decision easy for you to make i mean other than the fact that you know a bunch of nice guys yeah i mean i think seeing the way that they worked and like the way that you know every decision was driven by like okay what gets three guys across the line the fastest and just sort of that like really pure approach to team pursuit and not like anything anything involved or anything that would normally be involved with like any level of ngb um where it was just a little bit more bare bones and like going really fast like it was awesome man it was super fun to race with those guys and like learn from them and see their philosophy and their training and everything and just to be a part of that experience like that whole that whole project it was it was awesome and obviously you know we all know dan bigham has got a a great eye for detail for going faster for being aero for the tech side of things um are you similar in, in your outlook are you are you a guy that sort of tests things and wants to know the science behind things i do i don't have nearly the depth of knowledge in the background that dan has like i'll still message him about stuff sometimes but yeah i think i do really like the testing of everything i just started working on more like aero testing and rolling resistance testing on gravel too so I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, on the on the team, and what did you make of of Dan and Joss's our records the other week? Oh man, it was awesome to watch. Like to see both of them go do it and put up a big goal and like make it happen was yeah, pretty incredible. Do you fancy it yourself, or are you still you know do you like the still like the the under four minute <laughs> rides? I don't know, man. I mean, I I I could see it happening. It's definitely not on my immediate list of things I want to do. What is on that list? I mean, we've, I think a lot of people are expecting you to, to uh, do a, a sea level record or attempt that. Is that something that you, you're thinking about? No, not really. <laughs> I've never understood. I've never understood why like people think sea level is such a, a big shenanigan. Like it's a world record, you know? I think if you put any asterisk next to it, doesn't make it a world record you know what i mean yeah it's kind of like when people put like uh like age group world records it's like well there's a big asterisk next to it it's just people in your age group it's not like we also have like redhead world records or like people whose names start with d world records you know like 
you don't put asterisk next to it. Like it doesn't matter if it's if it's a, a certified track. Like that's where you go do it. That's the world record. I don't know. It's so, not. I'm not. I'm not planning to go like try to do a sub four C level. Like I'm going to try to go quick at worlds, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not. It's not a li- on the list of things I want to go do. So well, worlds is is on the horizon then. Um, how are you feeling ahead of Worlds? Are you, are you looking forward to it? I mean, you know, you come off that record, you know, is is there an issue with sort of timing, timing form and stuff like that? Um, there is a little bit. I mean, I've had a little bit of a, of a build, like getting back from Mexico um, and then getting ready for this. Um, yeah, it's been a, a little bit more aerobic work than it was getting ready for Mexico, just because it is a sea level track. And so it is, inherently a more aerobic effort but yeah i mean i feel like the the time in between has been good it's not like too immediate and it's also not like you know so far away that you're just languishing the whole year and tell me about back on the record then um i I mean i'm interested in in what went into uh, a record like that um particularly um around the bike Tell us everything you can about the, the bike that you rode to a sub four minute uh, pursuit record. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess Zip has been a, a long time sponsor, um, just personal, like, and so I feel I always felt weird because they made some uh, track wheels, but they were like, you know, they didn't test well in a lot of other frames. Um, and so I started talking with them sort of when things started actually looking like they were going to happen because, you know, it's South America, you just don't know. And um, so then they, they designed that new bike with Argon. And I was like, okay, that's the bike. Like, let's do that. Um, and then a lot of it was kind of plug and play after that. Like, you know, Dan uh, let me borrow his extent or those extensions, the Pentaxia ones. Um, I still have his actual his old argon frame, the the red and black one. Um, so I use that for training a lot. The new uh, argon TKO with the zip wheels, the Vittoria Auras. So that's their new track tubular, their ultralight one. I got the new Watch Shop Kratos crank on there, which is super cool. I don't know. It's a. I guess there's not that many other parts. It's just a track bike. <laughs> That's, I mean, it is just a track bike, but just a track bike, yeah. you know, there's, there's just a track bike and there's just a track bike, isn't there? Um, yeah. It's good. To, I mean, how, how involved was, uh, was, was Dan in, in, in your, in your effort and in your, in your setup on the bike? Pretty involved. Like I, I, you know, there, there's always times when you're like trying to change a little bit of stuff or, um, you know, try out new things and, uh, to have someone as a sounding board for that kind of stuff was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it wasn't like this specific attempt, it was like, you know, years of dialing in my position. Like he's played a big role in that. And are you going to take, I mean, when you go to do, to do, to do worlds then, are you able to ride the same setup there as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, same. Actually, obviously, you know, when you think about, you know, some people when they're with um, their national teams and stuff like that, then there's other, there's other commitments, you know, and I, I was just wondering whether that, you know, you could just, um, yeah, ride the same bike. Obviously, you know, it's tried and tested. You want to be on that, on that. Yeah, road, you? it you is. Know? Well, and I rode the Argon, the older Argon last year in Berlin. 
Um, and that went super well. I think it also helps that it's not an Olympic event. Yeah. So there's a little bit less attention on it. You know what I mean? And talking about the Olympics, obviously we, we, you know, it's a big disappointment uh, for you guys not to be um, at the Olympics. Is, is that still a dream that you're going to pursue going forward or have you sort of just, you know, put that behind you now and move on? Um, I think I've mostly moved on from it. We'll kind of see. Yeah. I, I'm not really, really planning to make another go at it. I mean, it's absolute. Such as, I mean, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I, I grew up in the era, you know, of watching Chris Boardman on the telly, you know, and that's for a lot of British people. That's, that's how we got into cycling, you know, through watching Obrey and Boardman and, and um, to not have, you know, to not have the individual pursuit in the Olympics, just, I mean, it still smarts with me massively. Well, especially when it's in such an exciting time, you know, yeah. I mean, for, for not just me and Ghana to have dropped the record, you know, 10 seconds in three years, but also like, look at worlds last year. Like you, you had to break the old world record just to make top eight. That didn't even get you into metal rounds. Like, it's incredible. Man. Yeah. It's incredible. People are going so fast. That's the thing is, I mean, you know, we talk about yourself in the same breath as, as Ghana. Um, and we all know what, Gano is capable capable of capable of on the road um do, like since since you've done the record and stuff like that do, do you know do you have road teams sniffing around you know is or is or is that just not not part of what you want to do it's not really part of what i want to do like i like doing the the gravel thing that me and christina have been building um like it's it's a fun project like it gets a lot of people involved into cycling in a really direct way um, and that's something that's always been like a big driving force for me. It's like getting more people on bikes, venturing however they want. And like, I feel like we've got, and we've built like this really unique thing to be able to do that more effectively than a road team. And it's also just like never been something I really wanted to do that much. And no, I mean, it sounds, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, from, from what you're saying, you know, I, I, you probably don't realize it, but I think your, your sense of satisfaction with life is probably adding a few extra, extra watts to your output. I think, you know, it's, it, you know, it's it, that, you know, you have to, you know, you have to be, have some kind of, I guess, harmony, you know, some kind of, some yeah. kind of then, you know, I don't know what it is, you know? No, I think I know what you mean. Like you got to enjoy the process. Yeah. So, so where does it take you? So beyond worlds then, I guess, um, you know, there's a, you've done a hell of a lot, you know, are you, are you the sort of guy that's just has to be chasing a goal or do you think you're just, you know, I'll ride my bike and then something will just pop into my head and that'll be the next goal. I don't go searching for it. It'll just, it'll just come to you. It's the second one. Yeah. It just happens, you know? Well, I'm interested to find out what it is. Me too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think odd axes are definitely on the calendar. Like we were just talking last night about, Paris Press Paris is wow, yeah. The next one's 2023. And I've done a 1200 K before, but I was like, oh, it'd be kind of nice. Like, you know, we could do our our super random A series in 2022. And then we're all qualified for PvP in 2023. Like that that has been on my bucket list for a long time. I really, really want to do that. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a historic race. I think people don't realize how historic pbp is you know with it you know once upon a time you know being a 
essentially oh my god pro race yeah. is huge isn't it it's just, yeah it's huge. And, and, and you have to qualify for it as well so i mean you so um so i get where would you be going in order to qualify for it then where would you be where would you be riding no idea literally <laughs> no idea what about the um transcontinental and stuff like that then is that sort of on your on your radar yeah i think i think those are all possibilities those kind of events yeah interesting i'd be there'd be a few people <laughs> a few people worried <laughs> few, well <laughs> it's funny there's been there's been people because that's a partner race right uh, you can do it as a partner race you can do it as individual there's i mean i think most of these most of the races these days or i mean sometimes wrong to call them races i think most of them have a have a sort of um a partner event as part of it um but also you know there's the solo effort as well so i think i think you can do both yeah but as a, as a, as a duo, of, you'd be dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of like, okay, here's these checkpoints and you have to figure out how to get in between them through Eastern Europe. Like, dude, that sound, that's like the coolest race format I can ever imagine. I want to, I, I would love to do that one. Well, listen, I mean, we'll trade you uh, European long distance ultra endurance races for your gravel any day of the week. I'd, I'd definitely, I'd definitely do a swap. I'd happily do it. Come do it, man. There's loads of room. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hopefully one of these days, you know, it is the dream to to get out there in the States and, and sample it. But listen, dude, thank you for spending some time with me. Um, it's uh, it's really great. It's great to speak to you at this point as well, because our colleague, Mitch Docker, the other most famous mustachioed man in the peloton, um, having just retired, I, I guess you're the now sort of the lead mustachio in cycling world. So well done. Oh my gosh. I don't know if I can hold a candle to Mitch Docker's mustache. He's got the mullet too, right? I think, well, you know, still, there's still time for you to little party at the back, party at the back, maybe. Oh, I'll work up to it. Maybe. <laughs> well, listen, honestly, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I've, um, I've been um, fascinated by your outlook on life. I'm, I'm pretty envious of your lifestyle, to be honest. I sort of, just by speaking oh, to you, I've sort of tried to pinch a little bit of it as I, you know, as I'm, <laughs> as I'm locked down, you know, with, with kids and a job, you know, the idea of just riding my bike and living in a van and, you know, following just, well, just following my mood, really just uh, that really, really appeals. So, you know, you got to well, wait till you see what we did with the trailer, then you'll be really jealous. Oh, I mean, well, listen, talk, talk us through it. So, I mean, how big is it for a start? It's 25 feet long. Right. So it's not massive. No, it's not massive. But honestly, it's like, I don't think we'd need a bigger one. Like we've got, we've got a full bathroom. We've got some storage in the back. Then like the middle bit is like a, a three-way fridge, a stove a little seating area with the table. And then there's, you know, heaps of storage. There's a bench that's behind the, the wall. There's only one like big wall and that's into the bedroom. And then we've got a full size bed in the bedroom. And bikes inside or outside? Bikes are outside. Okay. Definitely no bikes, but we have, there's a hitch on the back. So we have a Kuat, you know, four bike, swing out rack on the back with spare tire yeah dude it's a good setup like we've got air conditioning we got heat um we can run almost everything off propane we can run the fridge off propane the stove the water heater the main heat so we got two big propane takes in the front yeah it's a good it's a good setup we re- we've got a freezer in here 
It feels nice. pretty cush. Yeah. Uh, TV or no TV? No TV, just laptops. Well, what are you what are you watching then when you're on the road? I'm interested to to find out what you guys are binging at the moment. Oh, we well we're currently working on Squid Game. I mean, oh, like us and everyone else, <laughs> the rest of the world. Yeah, I fin- just finished it. Yeah, night. we did just finish Midnight Mass. Yeah, great that, spooky season. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, what a good show! Absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. They've, they've, they've sort of thrown the book at that one, haven't they? Sort of all the spooky tricks. Just just throw some spooky ideas in, mix it in the pot, oh. see what comes out, yeah? Dude, the stuff in the window, like in the first few... I'm trying not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't watched it, but like that absolutely scared the piss out of me. <laughs> that was terrifying. Every time. Yeah. You know, you get into like a nice conversation and they zoom over to the window and I'm just like ready to punch <laughs> through a wall. I'm so terrified. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not the sort of thing you should be watching in a van, really. That's that's, no, that's the scary, no. you know, you know, pulled up in a lay by. Suddenly there's a knock at the door. No, no, no. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by Science. Well, thanks as ever to Science in Sport for their continued sponsorship of the Cycling Podcast and all that we do here. We are always very, very grateful to those guys. And if you are trying for a new world record, whether that's an hour on the track or under four minutes on the track, you might want to get stocked up with some new Science in Sport products to fuel your ride if you are doing so go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25 for 25% off your order that's SISCP25 well I did enjoy uh, spending that time um, with Ashton now Lizzie um, you are one for speaking out on issues Um, forgive me here if I (laughs) use our, our little humble podcast as a as a bit of a platform um i am terrified by the state of the planet and 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 climate change and the future for 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 my kids right so um obviously cop 26 is going to be taking place in glasgow um I spoke to um, a cyclist called Anna Lawson. Now she is um, she competes in in Ironman events, um, and that's something that I've been sort of fascinated with for a while because they, it's it's a it's almost a, an entirely different uh, tech world to to regular cycling. It's sort of outside the um, the UCI regulations. So you and and the actual demands on a bike uh, are very different from what you would see in a say a regular triathlon or a or a time trial on the road. So I wanted to speak to to Anna about that, but also the fact that she and a group of others are actually riding up to COP26 in Glasgow um, to highlight uh, how cycling um, can help change the planet and just get more eyes on what our leaders are doing up there or not doing, as it, the case might be. So this is uh, Anna Lawson. So what's your, I mean, I think we'll start probably with, with kind of your, your, well, your journey into triathlon then. How did you, how did triathlon get you? Were you a runner, swimmer, cyclist first? So 
originally nothing um, <laughs> up until I went to university. I did other sports, but wasn't particularly athletic, let's say, um, or fit, definitely, we'll say. Um, and I started getting into running when I went to university because it's so accessible. It was like a really obvious option. Um, and I find it really um, welcoming as a, as a sport and as a community, which, as you probably know, I think cycling and triathlon are, are kind of similar um, in that sense. So I started running and then I got into triathlon um, kind of in my second year because there were lots of people who ran who also did it and it just seemed so fun. Um, and ten, you know, going to races and things tends to be a um, kind of holiday and activity. So it seemed way more, yeah, way more fun to go along with people. Um, so from there I started, yeah, started doing small kind of the short distance triathlon, so sprints, etc. And then decided that I wanted to do an Ironman by the time I finished university because it seemed like a nice goal to have for, you know, you finish your degree, um, you do dissertation, et cetera, and you do an Ironman. Seems sensible that sounds, for this. That sounds like a really quick progression. I think it was, but I think at the time I was just naive. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't really occur to me. I'd got friends who were doing Ironman um, or aspiring to do Ironman. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, it's kind of the same that, you you know, you start running and you slowly build up the distances and you've done a half marathon and you say, okay, well, I'd like to try a full one. Um, and I'd done that in my third year of university. And so I was like, right, okay, well, I've done all the distances separately. So let's see if I can do it all together. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, kind of how it, how it began and how I got into this thing that was meant to be a one-off race and is now my hobby um, full time, let's say. Well, I mean, how is it? I mean, since university then, I guess, I mean, um, you must be, you're working these days, but uh, I mean, are you a full-time athlete as well? Um, I guess it's hard to say. So I work full-time. Um, I work in a normal job. Um, I'm an engineer and I would say I'm a full-time athlete in the sense that it takes up the majority of my time outside of work. Um, but I do also then just live a, no a normal life um, and try and just fit it around um there's a fine balance i think in age group racing where most people have full-time jobs and are fitting in around you know kids and other other commitments so um yeah as close as i can be i think without deciding that i can't work as much as i do well as an engineer i mean that must um that must have its benefits coming to your because i mean your sport i mean more so than you know road racing aerodynamics massive right you know and as an engineer do you do you bring a bit of that engineering background that sort of that thought process to what you do yeah I think so and I think to be honest um when you look at a lot of people who are triathletes even the pros as well a lot of them have sort of a science mathematical kind of data background um and I think part of it is not just things like aerodynamics although obviously that's a that's a big part of the interest of um kind of the technical side of our sports but it's also in the training and the the thought process that goes behind what makes a good athlete and I think in comparison to sports that are perhaps a bit more skill-based if I can say that I think I think it's fair to say um <laughs> if you get the right recipe for your training and you have the right mindset to push along that recipe then you can be a good athlete and I think a lot of that is down to um yeah the maths the science knowing what your body can handle do adding up all the numbers you know having things like all the data the power the speeds all the different metrics we've got and heart rate I think that's what um, pulls people in and makes it interesting. It's not necessary per se. And, you know, there are lots of people who aren't that way minded who do it. But I think you'd find if you did a survey, a lot of triathletes have some sort of background or interest in it because, yeah, we love data and we're all really geeks behind it. And I think it's true for cyclists too. Um, we're all just geeks. 
Oh, certainly. And, and, and more so, it's a bit of a rabbit hole, isn't it, for geekdom? It sort of drags you further down. Um, in terms of yeah. then the geekiness then, what are you... I want, I, the reason I wanted to speak to... I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons I want to speak to you, but obviously we'll get on to the, the, the main one later on. But um, I've been really keen to speak, to speak to someone who competes in Ironman because um, the way I understand it, obviously Ironman is its own brand, so it's sort of outside of UCI regulations. So with the bikes, you can be a little bit more experimental um than you can with triathlon is that is that the case and are you a bit sort of you know is your ironman bike a bit sort of wild and um really far removed from the sort of a standard time trial bike i'm not sure how it compares to a standard time trial bike um purely because you never had or i never had those restrictions to begin with because i started straight out into triathlon um in ironman so i never had the uci um restrictions around what i could use um i would say that at the big races particularly things like the world championships you get some crazy bikes you get some um really strange brands that just really push the boat and try and you know completely redesign how the frame of a bike works so that it can um compete with with uh, other brands yeah so um I think it's nice not having those restrictions. I think it makes it a lot easier to just focus on what is literally going to make you the fastest. Um, and it means that you can experiment and do lots of different things. I've got a Canyon, um, just a, a standard Canyon TT bike, um, which I don't think is as adventurous as some people's. Um, I've, I, you know, I've got a seat post and stuff that goes all the way down. I'm not going to any missing parts when you look at my bike, which is nice. Well, the other reason I want to speak to you, obviously you're about to, your season has drawn to an end, but you are, and this is a bit more, we've got a series called Explore on the Cycling Podcast. It's sort of about these sort of epic journeys and you know alternative cycling sort of adventures. Um, you are about to set off, I, I would, it's something which is, I mean, it's just, it's been on my radar for a while. It's, it's massively important, but um, tell us about the, your next sort of cycling adventure. Yeah, so in a couple of weeks' time, um, leading up to the COP26, which is a conference of parties, um, a global coming together of leaders around climate change and climate change policies um, worldwide, um, there are a group of us who are going to be cycling from London up to Glasgow, where COP is being hosted, um, to raise awareness, to bring together people who are like-minded, um, and yeah, to really shout about the fact that the climate crisis is so important and the role that cycling should play in in that as a solution. So along the way, we're going to be we're going to be stopping off. So the idea is that it's a it's a really accessible ride. Um, you know, you need some sort of le good level of fitness to be able to ride up to Glasgow over a week. Um, but it's going to be accessible. So it's not a race. It's not about doing it as fast as we can. It's about going along and meeting people, um, bringing people into this cycling community um, who all had the same passion for, for climate change. And along the way, we'll have we'll have events and talks, um, film nights, etc., to to let people share their stories with each other um, of how they're working in the sustainability world and what it means to them. Um, and hopefully a party when we get to Glasgow. Uh, how do you find um, the world of cycling when it comes to sort of tackling climate change? Obviously, you know, getting people on a bike is one thing, but the, the cycling community is, itself and as a sport doesn't always appear to be doing a lot, I don't think. No, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, I guess there are limitations as to as to what they can necessarily do to be more sustainable um, in 
that you know there's options of things like how the, how bikes are built but it's also about the way that races are, are run and i think um and events of course so i think that's one of the main ways that i've seen um cycling and other endurance events try and push towards being more sustainable so things like how you're providing fuel to anybody participating um how people are traveling there as well i think having it in place so that it's easy to be able to travel with bikes on things like trains rather than having to fly, et cetera, um, is kind of where the focus needs to be um, to allow these things to still happen, but it be in a sustainable way. Is there anything you do in, in particular? Like I say, you know, obviously you are, you know, you are required to travel a lot, particularly around Europe, which is great once you get into Europe. Well, it was great once upon a time. Um, but when you, when you get into Europe, you know, getting around by train is it's pretty easy isn't it but so what, what are the things that you do with equipment um with travel every just the whole package really yeah so i mean the big one is trying not to fly and trying to do races that don't require you to fly so if it's possible to take things like the eurostar and get across to europe that way like you say when you're actually across in europe it's it's quite easy to get around but it's our first bit of, of working out how to get between it um and choosing races that are in places that are accessible which is quite tricky because some of the more beautiful places are a bit more remote and they're harder to to get close to aren't they um which make it tricky but that's for next season in particular that's kind of how i'm basing myself obviously the pandemic kind of forced everybody to look for local races and i think it drew to our attention the fact that we have a lot of beautiful places on our doorstep so you know racing in places like wales in scotland or around the new forest etc um i don't think people have always appreciated just how nice it is compared to you know going to the alps etc it's fantastic but we still have loads of opportunities around here so um yeah it's finding those opportunities in the uk and then for the big big races where you're wanting to go up against people internationally um is looking for places that you can get to without flying and when you're there rather than hiring cars etc um set yourself up so that you're near public transport and making sure you can get around like that I mean, there is a lot of responsibility on the individual, isn't there, with with, with these things? I, I guess that, I mean, you know, when you become a professional, you can sort of hand over your responsibilities, particularly in in, in road cycling. You know, you just do what the what the team says. But with the way you spoke about it, it's, you know, there is there is more responsibility on the individual, no doubt. Yeah, and I would agree. And I think um, perhaps with road cycling, if you're in a team, um, it's made a bit easier because they can make choices that influence all of you and so they can you know make sure there's transport for all of you but i think for races where you're racing as an individual it's incredibly hard to make those decisions and do things and it might mean that you're compromising your own performance by doing it so you know for getting switzerland if it meant that you're taking three different trains across europe and it's going to take you you know two and a half days to get there compared to traveling on a plane and having that recovery time on the other side yeah it's almost like you're having to take a um a compromise to how you perform when you're there or you're having to pay more because you're having to stay longer so you've got time to recover from the long journey um yeah it makes it very hard i believe well then um let's go back to sort of cop 26 then your your ride up to glasgow um what's the route can people sort of join you along the way yeah so we've got people joining along the way um so we're going for a week so there's um various stages of it and people can join for a single stage or multiple stages or the, the whole thing. Um, I think we've got about 70 or so riders joining as part of the core team. And then we've got many more riders joining for, for specific legs. Uh, I think particularly the first leg, London to Oxford, is probably going to be pretty big. Mm -hmm. And it is a nice first day because it's fairly flat. 
um, might get a bit ropey later on when we're going past the Lake District um, and we're a few days in and feeling it a little bit. Um, yeah, so the idea is we're going to be set. We're going to be setting off from London and then stopping in in certain cities along the way and staying there. Um, and like I say, doing sort of events in the evening, um, and people can jump in and join and get the train to to join in different parts um, as they as they wish, basically. Well, I'm in um, I'm in the Peak District, so you you, pass, you must be passing through the Peak District, surely. We're passing along the west of it. Yes, we're going to be going up via sort of Manchester route, um, although hopefully not through the city centre. Um, so, yes, I'll tell you what, so... Manchester is one of the worst places on earth to cycle. Do not, is do it? not <laughs> the, honestly, the roads are so bad. Yeah, I mean, I live just outside Manchester. Well, I do at the moment as we're recording this. Yeah, the, the roads are terrible. But, you know, just that if you can just glance off into the peaks from there, it's uh, oh, some of the best riding in the country. You, you'll love yeah, it. Yeah, I'm. I'm from um, from Sheffield, so not too okay, far from the right. district. Yeah, I always. I mean, I live down south now, and so when I go home, I get reminded that I don't do hills enough. Um, but yeah, <laughs> sure. the riding is beautiful, and the route will be absolutely stunning. Um, you know, we're going to be passing through the south of Scotland, and as soon as you get into there, it's the landscapes are amazing. And yeah, going along the Lake District and going through Oxfordshire, it should be should be nice but i say this we are planning a week-long cycle at the end of october in the uk so it's probably going to be gray and raining and we're going to be enjoying those coffee stops for as long as we can <laughs> well i mean the thing is we, you know we talked about this this ride and it sounds like a lot of fun and you know and it's um you know cycling brings us a lot of joy but obviously i mean i don't know about you but i just get daily getting increasingly more angry and anxious about the climate crisis and the in the inaction, uh, the seeming inability of um, our leaders to to do anything about it. COP twenty six uh, just feels like one of the most hugely important events that's ever happened on the planet, doesn't it? Really, you know? Yeah, it's just enormous. And um, what are you helping? What are you hoping comes out of it, if anything? <laughs> I'm hoping that there are some more policies set by leaders. Um, and in that way, I mean, the the leaders who aren't currently um, putting forward policies, you know, the UK has set some brilliant targets. And although there's a whole different debate as to whether that actually means it will meet them, um, it's at least a first start. And I think, you know, like you say, COP26 is one of the biggest events in terms of climate change for our planet. And I think most importantly, it's now a regular term, you know, people who weren't involved in sustainability or know much about climate change now know of COP26 and understand what it is. If you look at the previous COPs, I don't think that was quite as true. I think you had to have been in the bubble before to really yes, to definitely. really understand it. But I think so many more people are engaged now. Um, yeah, there's a better and better knowledge of it. Um, and I think that in itself is a win for climate change to just get more people engaged and wanting to make a difference and wanting to make an impact. And if what we get from COP26 is just you know some more promises if that means that people inside those countries then start you know get involved in and taking action then that is the right step forwards i don't think i'm going to naively tell myself that you know they're going to make lots of promises and Mm -hmm. and reverse things over over one cop because we've seen from the past like the paris agreement that they can make promises and go back on it or just Mm -hmm. never meet them um but the the conversation is the most important part and the public being um, as involved as possible, is incredibly important, I think. 
Just a quick one before we rejoin Lizzie. Um, the Ride the Change ride to COP26, if you want to follow it or get any more information about it, perhaps you want to join them for one of the stops along the way, um, if you go to adventureuncovered.com, that's where you can find all the details about that and why they're doing it and things that you can do as well to help out um, in the fight against climate change. Um, Lizzie, um, professional bike racing just uh, doesn't really do enough when it comes to the climate, does it? It's such a challenge. I mean, cycling is so great as a means of transport, but then there's so many things about the cycling industry that, you know, aren't great. We have these carbon bikes that we just chuck away um, after not very long and it's not exactly uh, very biodegradable. And then professional cycling. I mean, we have these convoys in the Tour de France where, you know, God knows how many cars we have. But then again, you know, we have companies like Skoda who sponsor so many of the teams who are bringing in electric vehicles and trying to run the Tour de France or at least from the organisational side on all electric vehicles. But whether, you know, it's electricity or whatever, that energy still has to come from somewhere and there are still a hell of a lot of vehicles. And sometimes I think just even small tweaks to the professional cycling calendar could make a huge difference. We have, um, you know, in in the traditional calendar, we have one weekend in Strada Bianca in Italy, then we go up to north of Holland for Ronde van Drenthe, and then we come back to Italy for Trofeo Alfredo Binder. And you just think, well... You know, for everybody, including the health of the planet, if we just stuck those two Italian races together, then you would save, you know, yeah. four trips across Europe. And I think that as these things are getting highlighted, hopefully we will make small tweaks that can can add up to, to bigger change. But I mean, how you get around the fact that um, it's just a, a giant circus that needs to travel around the, the country... And we do that in big gas-guzzling vehicles. I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that, to be honest. I mean, you know, as an individual, I can do simple things like trying to take the train when possible instead of taking a plane. But, yeah, you you wonder how much difference little old little old me can make. Lizzie, I think you make a big difference. You've made a big difference. You've made a big difference to my life anyway. So uh, thank you for that. Lizzie, it's been great hanging out with you uh, this month. Uh, we'll be back again next month. We might have a new hour record uh, to report on. You, you never know. Um, good luck to Alex Dowsett out there in Mexico. We'll keep an eye on, on how he does out there. And um, yeah, well, I'll see you next time out, Lizzie. Thanks very much, Tom. See you later.